Hello, welcome back to the Catholic Cinema Crusade podcast. I hope you're all having a great day. Today is February 17th, 2024, and today we are doing episode 17, where we're going to be looking at the Back to the Future trilogy, so stick around. Welcome back. It's great to have you. Just a reminder to like, subscribe, share the podcast. Uh, you can email your comments at thedangerousaint, all lowercase, all one word, thedangerousaint at gmail.com, or comment on the show on Spotify, and maybe we'll read it on air and talk about it. So today we are doing a throwback episode to yesteryear. So let's start with prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Amen. Dear Lord, as we go through the season of the Great Fast of Lent, help us to remember the three things that you want us to do. Prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Help us to incorporate these into our lives and into our Lent. And thank you for the gift of cinema and television and all the media that we have that enrich our lives and help us to grow closer to you. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. So, usually, we look at a film that was in the last week or two, but every once in a while, I like to go back, especially to the haunts of my youth, and look at the important films and franchises and TV shows and media that were formative in myself and formative into American cinema, and today we're going to look at what I think, now that we're 30-plus years on, is one of the great cinematic landmarks of our culture. I think it's undeniable at this point. This is one of the great movies and movies franchises of um, uh, America, and that is the Back to the Future trilogy. And the reason we're doing this today um, is it was my birthday a couple weeks ago, and I, I got some money from some relatives, and I used it to buy a Lego set. I like to have Lego sets around my classroom as I have display pieces. And I got the Lego DeLorean, like the big 18-plus adult one with thousands of pieces. And so I've been building that the last few weeks. And my son, who, who loves Legos, both of my sons love Legos, um, saw it and was really interested in it. So we thought we'd show them the film Back to the Future. And I was astonished, number one, at how well it stood up upon my viewing. Because I've seen it many times, but this is the first time I've seen it in probably about five or six years but also how much they enjoyed it. I mean, it feels like it hasn't aged a day. The technology is different. Some of the pop culture references are different. But my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old and even my younger kids were entranced the whole time they were watching it, which is pretty astonishing for a film that came out before their father was even born. I do have one small kind of fun personal connection to this as well. Uh, so, for those of you who know the trilogy, the day that uh, they go into the future in Back to the Future 2 is October 21st, 2015. And interestingly enough, our second child, uh, our, our second oldest boy, was born on this exact day, 2021, 2015. And this is one of the great joys of being a parent. You get that certificate, the birth certificate, where you have to fill out all the information. And you get to that line where it says name. And you realize in this moment, there's this little moment where you realize, whatever I put, no matter how weird, no matter how strange, is going to be this kid's name. And in many ways, determine the course of the rest of his life. At least for the next 18 years, but probably beyond that. And me and my wife get to decide what this kid is called. 
And we were very close to naming him Martin McFly Olzik. Like, second choice. My wife's shaking her head, but in my mind, this was a thing. Um, but we ended up calling him something else, a much more normal name. Uh, but his birthday is October 21st, 2015, which is just kind of a fun little uh, personal connection. Um, so let's start, first of all, with the basics of the plot. When we do throwback episodes, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because, again, these are classics. Um, but in the first film, which came out in 1985, this is an original science fiction comedy adventure, you have uh, Martin McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, uh, who's kind of a lackadaisical teenager who wants to be a rock musician, and he has this older friend, let's say, uh, named uh, Doc Brown, okay? Dr. Emmett Brown, and he's kind of a mad scientist type. He's an inventor, a nuclear physicist, and he wants his help testing a new invention. It turns out this new invention is actually a time machine that he created from a DeLorean, which was supposed to be this cool sports car that came out in the early 80s, one of the very few Irish cars. Uh, it actually had a very small production run. It didn't run very well, but was made very famous by this movie. Uh, long story short, uh, Marty accidentally goes back in time to 1955, so 30 years prior, and in the hours that ensue after he accidentally goes back in time and kind of realizes he's back in time, he interferes with his parents, um, George and Lorraine, meeting up. And so he eventually finds Doc Brown, uh, played by Christopher Lloyd, and convinces him that he's telling the truth, that he's actually from the future, he needs his help getting back to the future, but also realizes in the course of this that he has to make sure his parents meet and fall in love, because otherwise he and his siblings are toast. So you have these two kind of subplots. I gotta get back to the future, but I also gotta make sure that my parents meet. And there's all kind of funny mishaps that happen in between this, but long story short, he's successful in both his ventures, his parents do meet and fall in love, and he is successfully sent back to the future, to 1985, although it's a little bit different. As a result of this experience, everybody's a little bit better off than they were beforehand, and we'll get to that later. The second film, the sequel, now the first one was not intended originally to have a sequel. It ends on this kind of cliffhanger, but it very much kind of was meant to imitate the serials of the 30s and 40s and end on this to-be-continued sort of thing, but no real intention of a sequel, but it was so wildly successful they had to do a sequel. So of course they did a part two and a part three, and the part two, they go to 2015, which is 30 years in the future from when the film takes place. They have to save their kids, but in the process, something goes awry. When they go back to 1985, it's really different. So then they have to go back to 1955 and rectify this new problem while not interfering with the problems he was already trying to fix. He's been 1955. This sequence is really fun. It's classic, like Abbott and Costello, who's on first order thing, as they're all trying to figure out what it is and not interfere with anybody else. And then Doc Brown accidentally goes back to 1885, so 100 years prior. Marty goes back to rescue him, try to bring him back to the future. Uh, but in the end, Doc Brown decides to stay in 1885, but Marty does make it back to 1985, and he's better for it. And then it does kind of uh, wrap up nicely. So the one thing that came across very strong watching these films is just how much fun they are. They're just fun. It's kind of this 
otherworldly quality that films rarely capture. I can, off the top of my head, I can only think of a couple films that are like this, just from beginning to end, whether they're sophisticated or not, whether they're profound or not. And I think this one is profound. They're just fun. Men in Black from 1997 was like this. Spaced Invaders from 1992 was like this. Just a fun movie where you can sit back, eat popcorn, watch, and enjoy. The writing's good. The directing's good. The score is incredible. How this, how Alan Stravinsky's score, which has actually gone on to been one of the most famous scores of all time, it was on the AFI's 50 Greatest Scores of All Time list. It wasn't even nominated for an Oscar this year. It was kind of astounding to me. Um... The second and the third part are less so. The first one just feels timeless. It feels original, fresh. It'll never get old. The second and the third lack a little bit, also probably because now we're past 2015 and we realize how silly some of their ideas, although some of them do come to pass. But I would say the second and the third still hold up well as just kind of fun films in their own right. And it's just an adventure. You're always on the edge of your sleep wondering what's going to happen. They're always kind of back and forth. The directing that Robert Zemeckis does is amazing in this. Um, it's, I mean, this really is, it's hard to say this is his masterpiece because you have Who Framed Roger Rabbit and you have Forrest Gump and you have all these other really great films. Uh, but the directing really impressed me with just how he was revealing things and things that are happening in the background. So it's a really fun, watchable film. And I don't see that changing. Even in 20, you know, 35 you can look back on it, watch, and have fun. So now we're going to get a little bit deeper. As I was watching this, I re it's different watching this as a parent of children than it is as a kid, kind of, because when you're watching it as a kid, you're thinking of yourself as Marty McFly, this fun time traveler, and isn't it kind of fun to meet my parents when they were younger? But as watching it as a parent, you're also kind of reflecting on your own journey, and you're seeing yourself more in George and Lorraine. Um... You know, and every character has to face some sort of struggle in themselves that this time traveling is dealing with. So Marty, of course, like many teenagers, thinks his parents are square and kind of stupid and they're stopping him from having fun. But when he goes back in 1955, he realizes his parents were just like him. His dad's a nerd and a sci-fi geek and very socially awkward. is even a peeping Tom, so he's struggling you know, with the vestiges of puberty. His mom is well, a little bit, you know, unexperienced in the ways of love and perhaps is a little socially awkward in her own right. But, you know, again, they're like me. And it, there's this great scene where Marty and his mom, who is, you know, 1955, is roughly the same age as him, and she's, like, smoking and drinking and trying to do all these bad things, and he's, like, astonished because he wouldn't even do these. He's like, ah, you do this. And she's like, geez, you act like my mother. And it's his mother. And it's just really hilarious because it reminds us that, it reminds the kids that, hey, your parents were once like you. And, you know, they have to deal with, you know, you know the things that you're causing, you're eventually going to deal with. And as a parent, it reminds me, okay, my kids are like Marty and they're experiencing this. So it's this great empathetic film where you can see things from a multi-generational perspective. We're all just trying to get to the kingdom. This is something that you know, is it's so hard to tell kids, but as you grow up, you realize it. Like, when you're a kid, you look at adults, and you think they got it all together. They're a different kind of entity because they know things, they work hard. And then you realize as you get older, you're the same person you were when you're eight. You might be 
smarter with certain things, more disciplined certain things. But your interests, what you love, what you feel, it fundamentally doesn't change that much. You're still the same person. And there's this always this terrifying moment, especially in young parents, where you realize I'm the adult now because you still feel like that same person because you are that same person. You're just in a different stage of your life. And now I can look at that and say, you know what? These older people in their 80s and 90s, they don't feel really different than me that I feel right now. Their experiences are different and they might have new knowledge they can pass on, but they're the same kind of people. We're all in the kingdom trying to get together. We're all just trying to uh, figure out the world around us. We're just at different stages of that adventure. And Doc Brown himself has this interesting arc. He doesn't really have an arc in the first film very much, other than just kind of his own self-confidence. But as you go through the second and the third film, he kind of has this classic mad scientist dilemma where he realizes you know, the Oppenheimer thing, like, gee, I can destroy the world if this gets loose. I must destroy my invention or, or else, you know, time will be erased. But then he also realizes the way of the heart. He falls in love with someone in the third film, someone from the past from 1885, and ultimately decides to stay with her. That a life lived well can be lived without plumbing and electricity just as well as it can in the future of flying cars, okay? And that's what really matters. And so he has this really nice arc, too. And it was nice to see them add that in the kind of second and third film rather than just kind of stereotyping Doc Brown as just the mad scientist and nothing else. The other thing that struck me as I was watching uh, this with my children was the necessity of what courage means, both as an active virtue and as a passive virtue, okay? So in the first film, courage is very much an active virtue. So early in the film, we see that George McFly, Marty's dad, is kind of a lightweight. He's easily pushed over. He doesn't like confrontation, as he says himself. And to be honest, Marty, while less so, is also kind of a wimp. He, you know, is worried about his band taking off. He doesn't want to send in, you know, a tape cassette to a record company because he's worried about rejection. But, through the, but they're put in very high-stakes scenario, namely if Marty doesn't get his parents to figure it out, he's literally not going to exist. So he has to kind of have some courage and figure out a way to do this, and he learns self-confidence, he learns to do that. And then George McFly, as a result of this, finds the courage within himself to confront Biff, who is, let's be blunt about this, literally going to rape his <laughs> girlfriend and later Marty's mother. And so... He confronts Biff and he punches him out. And it's this act of courage as an active solution. And this changes his whole perspective because now George McFly writes his book. They have a much... When Marty McFly goes back, this is easy to miss, but when he goes back, everybody's life is better. George is more confident. Lorraine's more confident. His siblings are put together and they have better jobs. Their house is nicer. They have more financial stability. Even Biff, the rapist, is a better person, a more honest person, a less despicable person. Everybody's better because of this one act of courage that George is able to find with Marty's help. But courage also means passivity in some instances. In the second and the third film, we see a really interesting arc with Marty's character because he is goaded into doing very irrational things simply by calling him chicken. He always has to prove his mettle, as it were, and prove his courage 
but doing so in really silly and irrational ways, like participating in an embezzlement scheme in the second film, or, you know, racing a car in the third film that would cause him to get into an accident and ruin his hand. And he has to learn that courage sometimes actually means backing out. If the bully's encouraging you to do something that's going to get you in trouble, it's okay to walk away. Sometimes you shouldn't walk away. Someone's being assaulted on the street, you should intervene. But if you're being goaded into doing something really idiotic, just smile and say, I guess I'm chicken, and walk away, and let them do something really idiotic. And it was nice to see how that virtue works. It depends on context. When I was kind of doing research for this episode, one of the things I found was just the endless parodies and commentaries on this. And this is something you find that's really the mark of a great film. A great film not only inspires parody, satire, commentary, it also inspires kind of jealousy. I remember when I was researching uh, my 100 Greatest Films book, which has not been released yet, um, but I was doing research on Wizard of Oz, I was struck with how many very bizarre and strange adult theories there are about that film involving drugs, involving sex, involving homosexuality, involving all kinds of things. And I'm like, I did not see this in this film at all. And when I was looking at Back to the Future, again, there were people who were talking about Oedipus complexes. They were talking about how it was a criticism of Reaganomics and giving this false sense of success. And it was a, you know, wish we could go back in time in the 50s, but really the 50s weren't like what it says, so the film is wrong. You know, all these sorts of things... And there was this really funny bit by John Mulaney where he basically describes in very blunt terms how weird today, in 2024, this story would seem. Why is Marty, a 16-year-old boy, friends with a 50-year-old disgraced nuclear physicist? It's a weird relationship. It's never explained. And that's actually the premise of a cartoon show, Rick and Morty. And then, you know, he goes on to explain how weird it was between Marty's mom having the hots for him but all of this, I think, at the center is simply a recognition that this is a gem. It's a classic. It's beautiful and it works. And because it works, people want to sully it. It reminds me of all the criticism that came out against Mother Teresa by Christopher Hitchens when he uh, published that uh, kind of uh, book against her after her death. We live in a much more cynical time. But we watch this film, and it's like a beautiful time capsule that says, no, there's another option. You can have this really fun, amazing film, and you can enjoy it, and don't worry about any other these silly issues. Um, and it, it sparked a great generation of filmmakers who loved it, kids who loved it. I remember playing with a little DeLorean toy in the bathtub in 1990, so I was probably only like four years old. And I remember my, my parents had this train set that went around the Christmas tree and I would put my DeLorean toy in front of the train set like the end of the third film and pretend like it was going up to 88 miles per hour. And it's my hope that not only are my kids enjoying this, we're not done with the DeLorean Lego set yet, we're going to get done with it soon, it's going to be in my room to appreciate for my children, and I hope one day to watch this with my grandchildren as well in 2015, 2045, who knows, I might even make it to 2075 if I'm lucky, okay? Um, but it's a great film. I would encourage you to go back and see all three films. They will stand the test of time. And we're signing off for today. I hope you have a wonderful day. Feel free to like, subscribe. You can send an email uh, to thedangerousaint at gmail.com, all lowercase, all one word, thedangerousaint at gmail.com, and maybe we'll read it on the air. 
Thank you very much and have a good day.